Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. I've lost count of the number of times I've taught Thomas Paine's common sense over the years. I've taught him for so long now that my T-Pain jokes no longer work on my students, and if you got that reference, you're welcome. On today's show, veteran journalist and biographer Harlow Unger talks to me about Paine, one of his predecessors in the newspaper business. He is the author of the new book, Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. It is the latest in a long line of Unger biographies about the founding generation. Unger reveals a fascinating character in Paine, a man who never met a revolution he didn't like. He also shares with me how his previous life as a journalist informs his approach to biography. You'll get as much of a lesson in 20th century journalism as you will in 18th century political radicalism. And just a reminder before we begin to like and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for next week when Professor Joanne Freeman walks me through the field of blood. But for now, let's enter a world of pain. You you began your career as a journalist, is that right? Well, yes and no. I began my career as a medical student and dropped out. I come from a long line of uh-huh. doctors <laughs> and grew up thinking I would always be a doctor until I got to, well, first to pre-med courses and then uh, to medical school, and I hated it. <laughs> everything about it, and I wasn't very good at it, actually. If, uh, uh, I didn't, if I hadn't come from such a distinguished family in medicine, I probably wouldn't have gotten into medical school mm-hmm. because my science grades were always very poor. My uh, English and history grades were always very high. Always very good. It was your father, uh, if I remember rightly, he pioneered a, uh, a particular procedure? He was uh, the father of modern blood transfusion. He invented the first direct transfusion instrument uh, that replaced, until uh, 1917, transfusions, which had only begun a few years earlier, uh, were done by syringe. So it took wow. all night long to uh, put 250 cc's of blood into the patient, into the recipient. And uh, it wasn't until uh, just before the Second World War that they discovered how to sterilize the inside of bottles. Uh-huh. And so that did away with my father's instrument now because they could I see. Tr- tr- put blood into a bottle and preserve it in a refrigerator. And then, of course, after... Uh, the Second World War, they invented plastic that you could <laughs> <laughs> sterilize the interior, and they used plastic. But uh, as I say, it was early early forties that they uh, invented gravity. In yeah. fact, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you you um, you had intended to follow in your the footsteps of your father and other medical professionals in your family. But as you said, your grades and literature and history were much better. And so is that when you began to think about becoming a journalist? Well, uh, not really. After I dropped out of medical school, I uh, held a number of jobs, trying by hit or miss to find uh, my way into a career. And it just so happened that uh, a French journalist whom I had known as a boy was it was sent to New York as bureau chief of the Agence France Presse, which was the world's largest news agency at the time. And uh, he hounded me to get out of commerce. Uh, he felt that was degrading and oh. uh, that uh, uh, I should find another profession with my education. And I said, where should I go? And he said, uh, go into journalism. You, mm-hmm. you won't make much money, but you don't need any money. You come from a well-off family, and you'll see the world and meet the world's most interesting people. 
So I said, poof, make me a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> and he hired me for the Agence France Presse uh, for a while as a, as a, stomp, as a, as a starting point. Uh, I grew up bilingual in French and English, so I was translating news mm -hmm. articles from French into English for, for them. And then one day, because of his ties to journalism in New York, uh, he learned of an opening at the New York Herald Tribune, uh, contacted them, and gave me the name of the person to see, and I was hired for the New York Herald Tribune. They were just starting, or had just started, the uh, New York Herald Tribune Overseas News Service, a, okay. a news agency that you, they had the largest uh, number of foreign correspondents of any daily newspaper at mm -hmm. that time. They were way ahead of the New York Times in that respect. And uh, so I was hired for, because of my, uh, I was bilingual, I was hired for the, uh, at the New York Herald Tribune Overseas News Service in Paris. That's where they were based. And that was the beginning of my journalism career. Not and, a bad uh, gig in Paris. Uh, I stayed with the Tribune until uh, they folded in 1967. Mm -hmm. And by that time, because of my boss at the Tribune, he had encouraged me to uh, freelance. Uh, we were allowed to freelance to non-competitive publications, monthly magazines and that type. And I had built up uh, a number of magazines to which I was a regular contributor. So I decided to set up my own uh, news syndicate out of New York, uh, both news and features. I continued doing features for the magazines that I worked for mm -hmm. and sent out letters to uh, second-tier newspapers, the Liverpool Post, for example, which couldn't afford the major news agencies. Mm -hmm. News agencies were very, very expensive, and only the top-tier newspapers could afford them. So I went after the second-tier newspapers, and um, within a few years, I had 75 newspapers around the world wow. uh, uh, taking my weekly reports from New York, and uh, plus a whole bunch of, of uh, monthly magazines for which I would write a monthly column called the American Report. And there I was uh, until the Internet came along. <laughs> <laughs> but you had built up a pretty wide readership. Yes, but uh, I couldn't compete with the Internet. With the Internet. There are just too many sources on the mm -hmm. Internet uh, for newspapers. And... Uh, it, it began to put me out of business. Oh, okay, sure. At the time, my son was uh, applying for college, and at the same time, I was on the board of directors of a foundation uh, that helped uh, underprivileged kids get into college. We had started it after the Martin Luther King assassination and the riots really? that ensued, and I covered those riots in New York and Newark, New Jersey, for the newspapers mm -hmm. in my syndicate. And uh, we decided that, uh, the, especially the private schools, just were not accepting any black kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, we shamed them into taking uh, black kids. At first they said, well, they can't afford the tuition. And we put a hole through that, uh, that uh, argument by saying, tuition is phony. Tuition, are all your, the seats in every classroom filled? Right, <laughs> and right. They said, no. Well, it doesn't. That, do you? Does it cost you more electricity to put another body in your class? Yeah. Doesn't. Do, do you raise the teacher's salary? No. In other words, tuition is phony. 
Right. There was no such thing as tuition. And uh, so we said we would, we would raise the funds for tuition. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we would, no, give us tuition free, and we would raise the funds for room and board and tutoring if necessary. I see. Uh, so we started that foundation and became experts, uh, the, those on the board at least, became experts on college admission. Mm -hmm. When my son applied for admission to college, uh, his student advisor at prep school uh, said he was too ambitious. He should turn the list upside down. And my son, on the top of his list were uh, Yale and Princeton and uh, at the time Brown. Brown was the hottest school in the country because <laughs> they, had, they had instituted pass-fail. What year was this? Uh, this was 83. Okay. Uh, and and you're a Yale grad. Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And they had instituted pass-fail, so you, you didn't have to take any course there. <laughs> and it was Ivy League, so it, it, it became the hottest school in the country. At any rate, the advisor said, turn it upside down. Uh, your safety school should be your first choice. And I, he was in tears when he came home. I said, uh, forget about your college advisor. We'll handle it from home. Mm -hmm. And because of my knowledge of the admissions process, yeah. uh, he got into every school on his list except one. Princeton didn't take him because they knew we were a Yale family. <laughs> And they just figured that he's not going to come to Princeton. Automatic to you. Know, yeah. so, but that was the only school he didn't get into. And uh, so I started writing. The first book I wrote was, on, oh, he said to me, Dad, you ought to write a book. Oh, sure. <laughs> so I wrote a book on college admissions, which sold very, very well. Publishers said, uh, have any other ideas? I said, uh, let's do one on getting into private schools. I did that. And then I did one. For, on vocational education, the publisher of the uh, wrote about a half dozen uh, books on education and uh, the education process. And just so happened that the uh, uh, person who had been hired to do the Encyclopedia of American Education mm -hmm. uh, had to turn down, uh, had to had to quit after just a month or so because of uh, cancer. Of his his wife developed cancer. I know. So uh, they looked around for someone in, that did, knew something about education. They turned to me. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a three-volume Encyclopedia of American Education for two oh. years. And, of course, in that encyclopedia, you write short, but they have to be well-researched biographies of key figures right. in the education process. And at the very tail end came Noah Webster. <laughs> whom I knew nothing about, like most Americans, mm -hmm. when he wrote a dictionary. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's all, all I knew. <laughs> well, he was a hero in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. His dictionary uh, invented the American language, mm -hmm. in effect. And his dictionary became the uh, primary dictionary in England. It replaced Johnson's dictionary. Which is no small feat. Uh, and until the publisher in England went bankrupt. <laughs> Whoops. And Webster didn't have the money to, uh, to, to go over there again yeah. and, and set up. So Johnson's Dictionary came back into use because all these bookstores had stacks yeah. of them piled up, and they immediately pulled out Johnson's Dictionary. Samuel Johnson lives again. But otherwise, the American spellings would have become universal. Mm -hmm. uh, at any rate, his life was fabulous. Uh, he was president of Amherst College at one point. Uh, he's just a close friend of Washington, was instrumental in the background of the writing of our Constitution. Mm -hmm. 
So I asked uh, the publisher uh, who would buy a, uh, how do I get a publisher for the, right, the for a book? biography of Noah Webster? Well, they didn't do biographies. But it turned out that the former publisher had set up a literary agency. Uh. And he sold my uh, Noah Webster. And from there, I was off to the races because I realized that there were a lot of the founding fathers whom Americans really didn't know much about. Mm -hmm. Webster is a good example. And Webster's a perfect example. Uh, the next was John Hancock. Everybody knows his signature, but no one knows anything about him. So I was looking through your your catalog there, and yeah, I saw the Hancock biography. I'm like, that kind of makes sense. You know, we, we as you say, we see the signature. Everyone says, "Well, I, you sign your John Hancock," but yeah, but no one knows anything about who, him. You know, who is this famous character? <laughs> he was a you know, smuggler, which he didn't like that term. But um, but what more do we, you know? What more than that do we know? And so I started going to the library, the biogra historic biography section, mm -hmm. just going down the names. Uh, who hadn't done something about this guy? Mm -hmm. you know? And the next one was Lafayette, uh, which uh, became a bestseller. And uh, that was the first time I was invited to speak at Mount Vernon. And imagine uh, having a, you know, being bilingual. That really helped with yes, that particular biography. Uh, and, and it was thrilling doing research in those days because there was no Internet. <laughs> so... Yeah. With Noah Webster, not only uh, Washington, uh, uh, New Haven, the Yale Library, because he went to Yale, uh, and many, much, a huge amount of his papers were there. But he also did uh, uh, was in England for quite a while, and a lot of his papers are at the Wren Library in Cambridge, which is great Very fun. Nice. Uh, when I went into the research room, the assistant library librarian showed me in the research room, and there was this long old wooden table with old <laughs> chairs there. And uh, he said, sit wherever you want. Uh, Shelley sat over there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he went through the names of the people who had sat at the table. You were in good company. So, so that was thrilling, doing that yeah. kind of research. And then in Paris, of course, uh, a lot of research on Lafayette uh, and Webster. He also went to France in doing research mm -hmm. for his dictionary. Uh, so Research was just terribly, terribly thrilling mm -hmm. uh, in those days. Now, with the Internet, you don't have to go anywhere. You can get all the papers at the Wren Library on your screen. You can get all the papers at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, at the uh, Bibliothèque yeah. Nationale in Paris, everything. You can just pull it up on screen. Which is awfully convenient, but sometimes it's not as fun. It's no fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... and so tell me about how your, your writing process developed, because you, you were a reporter for a long time. You were managing your own syndicate. You were, had a wide readership. And then before you turned to biography, but you, you had to learn uh, how to compartmentalize ideas, how to convey big ideas, big narratives in, um, in, in a finite amount of space as a reporter. And so how did, how did, how did you develop that pro How did your writing process develop during those days? And then how did you... Uh, Transition that into writing biographies about Webster and Lafayette and Hancock. Well, I had already transitioned in, from uh, uh, newspaper writing to magazine mm -hmm. writing, to two different styles. Uh, the ma newspaper writing, of course, is, is, was in those days a simple, they called it the inverted pyramid uh, okay. style of writing. At the top, you had the, the lead with who, what, when, where, and why. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the next most important thing, and, and it, it, each 
paragraph, no more than two sentences long and no more than 26 words a sentence. That was the formula. Uh, each paragraph was in, written in descending order of importance. I see. So you had to organize everything in your story beforehand so you'd mm -hmm. know where it went where you're in going. the story. And the theory behind the, the inverted pyramid is that people are very busy re when they're uh, reading their morning newspaper, mm -hmm. and they just don't have time. That's why at, at, at that time in New York City, uh, the daily uh, newspaper, a, tab a tabloid, it's still in existence, the, the Daily News, mm -hmm. was the best-selling newspaper in America. It was uh, two, oh, more than two million readers. Wow. And a tabloid size, uh, they seldom went, news stories seldom went beyond four or five, six paragraphs. Mm -hmm. So you could get the gist of the article very, very quickly. Very quickly. And that was the th theory of newspaper, uh, the pyramidal side, the inverted pyramid style of writing in newspapers. Now, magazines is a bigger format. Mm -hmm. And the broad uh, outline of magazine writing was to grab the reader with your opening paragraph and perk his or her interest so that they're going to keep going. Invite them in. And so then you start telling your story as you would any s story in fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, the same principles. Uh, you, you have color in it. You have action in it. You have quotations in it. And at the end, uh, unlike modern short story writing, uh, the old style short story writing, would, there was an end. And right. the end would always refer, refer to the beginning. The beginning. Whatever questions ha haven't been answered, you finally answer at the bottom. So those were the basic styles. And in newspaper work especially, uh, they, the, the reader is uninterested in what Harlow Unger thinks. He wants to know what the people, what the people think. think. And you use quotations, quotations, mm -hmm. quotations to fill that story up. Uh, and it seemed to me like a good idea in biography. Uh, no one wants to read a biography of Noah Webster uh, with Harlow Unger's words all over. <laughs> they want to hear. They want to hear Noah Webster. Well, and, uh, so that that was my theory yeah. of uh, attacking these figures, especially lesser-known figures. Get them to talk and get the reader to know them intimately. Get the the, the central person. To a uh, personage to talk, uh, his wife, his family, mm -hmm. friends, uh, intimates, non-intimates, uh, you know, to hear a conversation between, well, it wouldn't be a conversation, be exchange of letters between George Washington and uh, Noah Webster, mm -hmm. told in conversational form with their quotes, is terrific. You know, it's very exciting. You are there. Used to be a, 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 one of the early television programs called "You Are There." Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was Ed, Ed Morrow was the uh, Ed Morrow, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, was the host of that. It was on CBS, a very popular program, and it took you back to historic events mm -hmm. using actual quotes, but with actors and act uh, uh, actresses interacting with each other. And so this is what you meant by you, know, you, you interview your historical characters. Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. If you're going to read the papers and letters of George Washington, talking about 100 volumes. Yeah, and climbing. Uh, 
John John Marshall, uh, twelve volumes. Uh, James Monroe is eight volumes, mm -hmm. and th these are not little paperbacks. These yeah. are thick volumes, these are thick of volumes. Two, two, three, four hundred pages. Uh, to read all that is a lot of work. Yes, sir. Uh, but you're going to dig up a gold mine of quotes, mm -hmm. uh, especially when it's, it's late at night and this guy's writing by candlelight with, with a quill pen and he's, he's really ticked off having <laughs> yeah, to yeah. stay up that late. <laughs> uh, but he's got to answer the president's uh, letter. Exactly. Yeah, sure. And, he's, and he better do it right away. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes just out of habit, they use earthy terms. Mm -hmm. And this a reader can relate to. Mm -hmm. And with my new book on Tom Paine, uh, this was one of the earthiest guys <laughs> ever, ever. Uh, well, and, and he attacked everything. So, uh, and he was a close friend of everybody. He was a close yeah. friend of Washington. So, so that the, uh, his writings and his letters, uh, which number in the, uh, really in the thousands, uh, are just an enormous amount of reading, but so worthwhile to bring this guy alive. Well, and I, I want to talk about uh, the book in just a minute, but and I'm curious that you said, you know, you want to privilege their words and, and put them in dialogue with each other and their intimates and the friends and whatnot. But it, 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 it seems like you would also have to have a sense of where you're going to tell the story. And so how do you, if you, if you are making the effort to sort of stay out of the way, then how do you develop the structure and, and kind of, develop a framework for the book or the project you're working on to make sure that you get to the place you want to go or you get the point across that you want to without interposing, as you say, your own sensibilities or, uh, or thoughts. Well, the, the, the most important thing is that the character has to have had uh, a, a key role in the founding of our nation. Okay. And there were many, many, you know, there were 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. We don't have good biographies on all 56. Now, all 56 cannot be called instrumental in the, in the, in the form, founding and forming of our government. Uh, many of them had uh, simply put their signatures on ratifying mm -hmm. on behalf of their particular province, as it was called. There used to be a... a, a kind of a humorous uh, uh, cartoon called uh, Believe It or Not. And uh, one, one, one of the questions, they'd ask a question and then answer it, who was the first president of the United States? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, they put John Hancock. <laughs> I think old George might have something yeah. to say about that. <laughs> well, and you, so you've uh, written about Hancock, written about John Quincy Adams, Patrick Henry, uh, these major figures. Now you've turned to Thomas Paine. I have taught common sense in class more times than I can count and probably can recite uh, numerous passages from it. You know, the cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind and uh, any number of other quotations you could pull from that. And so we think we know Thomas Paine. The students, uh, they usually get Thomas Paine through common sense, and that's about it. Um, if that. If that. And, and so what, um, what attracted you to Thomas Paine? Well, first of all, there hadn't been a biography of Thomas Paine in uh, years and years mm -hmm. and years. There was one written in England a couple of years ago, but in America, uh, I think it's 10 or 20 years. So it's been a while then. Uh, uh, he was a deist, 
as was Benjamin Franklin, a confirmed deist. In fact, it's, uh, 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 there's plenty of evidence that Benjamin Franklin converted him to deism. Uh, he left, he had quit the Quakers and was in search of some sort of uh, uh, stable Meaning. Uh, uh, belief mm -hmm. of some sort and, and became, was befriended by Benjamin Franklin who had seen some of his writings. He was a freelance writer for newspapers, and he was a part-time inventor. So they had a lot in common, a lot in common. and became very good friends. And uh, Payne, uh, Franklin Payne uh, not only became a good friend of his, uh, when uh, Payne went bankrupt, uh, Payne, because of his writing skills, was asked to write a petition on behalf of tax collectors petitioned to Parliament. Right. And a beautiful petition, beautifully written. And it was not only rejected, uh, Payne uh, was fired from uh, the tax collecting job and was left bankrupt and facing debtor's prison. And Ben Franklin paid for his way over to America mm -hmm. and, and gave him letters of introduction. And he arrives, gets to Philadelphia with all these letters of introduction. And the, uh, the print, uh, uh, major uh, newspaper editor in Philadelphia was starting a magazine, a monthly magazine, and was looking for an editor. Mm. And he hired Thomas Paine, who wrote brilliant uh, articles. And... Uh, the a kind of an early draft of what became common sense, and common sense just sp sp like why it was a bestseller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was the best-selling uh, book. It's it's hardly a book. It's more it's more of a pamphlet, but it was the best-selling uh, item of that type, best-selling publication in the Western world after the Bible. It spread like fire across America. Uh, it spread to England, really uh, put, first of all, it put the lie to uh, the myth of, of divine right of kings. Mm. Uh, as he would say later in Age of Reason, uh, if there was such a man as Adam, Adam was born before any religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. Uh, so... Uh, and I think it says in Common Sense, he says, you know, there's something exceedingly absurd about the idea of, a, of one person to rule above all. Well, uh, he said, what, what right is someone to rule over, or, over us just because he's somebody else's son? Right, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, he said, since when does a little island govern a whole continent, oh, continent. Uh, 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 6,000 miles away? So why do you think that Paine's words resonated with many American colonists? Because we, we know that there were a lot of people who were still on the fence. And of course, there were, there were people who were committed patriots from the beginning of the war. There were people who were sort of waiting to see what was going to happen. And then there were people who were ardent loyalists who couldn't imagine breaking from Great Britain, who very much believed in that idea of... of one man to rule above all, and that a, a, an island could rule a continent. The majority were not in favor of independence. Thomas Paine's uh, uh, common sense changed that whole uh, uh, the dynamic uh, uh, attitude, and Thomas Paine's common sense pushed 
the, uh, the, the dissenters over to favor independence. Uh, Washington uh, himself said that uh, Thomas Paine's common sense had really convinced America of the righteous—these are Washington's words—of the righteousness of separation. There was not much good spirit in the army, and Thomas Paine shows up uh, with this article called American Crisis, and Washington was enthralled. He sent uh, Paine down to Pen back down to Philadelphia on horseback to have copies printed up, and Paine came back. And Washington distributed the uh, this American crisis uh, to each of his officers and ordered them to read it read to it. the troops. And it began with the famous words, uh, these are the times that try men's souls. And they knew by then that Paine had written, and Paine is this big, uh, stocky Englishman, and he had come back with his own musket. <laughs> and he joined them, and he went across the Delaware with them and, and, and fought at Trenton. Well, that was the first of 14 articles, each called American Crisis, numbered 1 through 14, mm -hmm. uh, and all signed Common Sense, never signed uh, <laughs> Thomas Paine. They were all signed Common Sense. Well, everybody knew who Common, common Sense was. It's good marketing. And uh, some of them he wrote as letters to the commanding generals, the British commanding uh -huh. generals. One of them, he said, why haven't you conquered us? <laughs> Your army and navy outnumbers us. We don't even have a navy. Yeah. Uh, they arrived here without incident. No one stood in your way. They haven't met with any untoward incidents on, in America. Why haven't you conquered us? Yeah, what's the deal? Well, that infuriated the British but had Americans bent, doubled over in laughter. <laughs> Another one was addressed to Parliament saying, uh, why haven't you conquered us? And it, 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 it said, you know, everything you do, there's no way you can po possibly conquer us because uh, you're, it, it's like a game of checkers. Your troops move into one square, but we take over three squares that you've <laughs> left. <laughs> so there's no way you, you can't defeat yeah. us. And then uh, still another one addressed to the people of England. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Saying, why have you tried to conquer us? This, you owned all our commerce. You owned all our territory. Yeah. You were making a fortune out of us. <laughs> what, why on God's earth did you decide to conquer us yeah. with troops? There could have been a different way. So, uh, again, this had uh, Americans more and more realizing the, the, the common sense mm -hmm. behind this reasoning, the logic behind the reasoning, and that uh, this was the logical thing to do. And uh, years later, John Adams, who disliked Thomas Paine intensely. He was one of the few, few <laughs> American sure leaders who n never liked Thomas Paine. Well, Thomas Paine was a deist, and John Adams was a devout Congregationalist, a Puritan, in Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so he did not like Thomas Paine, but he himself, he, uh, John Adams said that Thomas Paine was probably the most important figure in, Amer in, in the 30 years 
of what we call the Revolutionary mm -hmm. War period, early national period, that Thomas Paine was the most important uh, figure, and that it, what has been called the Revolutionary War period, it should have been called the Age of Paine. The Age of Paine. And that's, that's John Adams uh, speaking. We, and so Paine was, a, in a sense, a journalist, and you were a journalist. And so what is your assessment about how uh, early Americans were consuming um, newspapers and print culture in this period? And, and sure, I think you're absolutely right that Paine's words and his idea that this is plain common sense and this, you know, this is something that we can all latch on to and it, and it makes, makes the, for the best course of action. But but the, there's also the fact that the, you know, we have to think about you know, distribution networks and how this is getting in the hands of people. And yep. yeah, and I mean, what does Paine's success with media in the 18th century have to teach us about um, how ideas were spread then? But also, I mean, what does it what does it have to tell us about our own time? Well, most people, uh, most uh, people who lived in this country, of course, were illiterate. Uh, but these publications were were printed in. Uh, you have to call them cities. They really weren't cities. They mm. were big towns. Big towns, yeah. Uh, Philadelphia, which was the largest city in America and became our first uh, uh, cap capital. Well, our second capital in New York was the first capital. But Philadelphia barely measured three miles in diameter. Mm -hmm. You could walk from one end of the town to the other easily. And Tom Paine uh, did just that. That's how he became such a popular figure in Philadelphia. He walked the town and 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 people who owned shops, they lived in those in the houses that held their shops. So they'd stand by the doorway and there'd be a sign what they did. Mm -hmm. a not a blacksmith, but a, a shoemaker, a, a dressmaker. And Tom Paine knew them all, every, everyone of any, of any property. Now the printers would print uh, what we call broadsheet. It, it, it's a, a large newspaper size page, uh, twice the it's two pages of a newspaper spread out, the, mm -hmm. the spread out into one. That's a broadsheet. Well, they'd print it on a broadsheet and post it out on, on the wall outside uh -huh. their shop. And literate people, of course, would be the first there. And illiterate people would gather around the, the, because they wanted to hear the news. And someone among the literates would read it aloud. And, that's, and then they, the, the illiterates would repeat it to their mm -hmm. families. Uh, after all, there was no other form of, of, of uh, communication in those yeah. days. There no, was no Twitter. Radio, so that people developed memories if they couldn't read. Mm -hmm. They had to memorize things. They had to rem rem memorize prices. After all, they, these were all, uh, sure. everybody was in business of some sort. Yeah. So they developed better memories than we have today. And they'd remember some of these words and, and the gist of these things. And a thing like common sense became so popular. Remember, even these illiterate people in America owned a Bible, mm -hmm. even though they couldn't read it. They owned a Bible. <laughs> and common sense became such a talked about uh, uh, pamphlet, book, in a sense. Everybody wanted a copy of it, whether you could read or not. <laughs> and even the illiterates could eventually pick out common sense mm -hmm. in big letters on the cover. Uh, just like uh, you know, little most children, especially children who are not deprived children, uh, but most children, middle income and above, learn to read long before they enter uh, kindergarten or even fourth grade groups. They learn things like pizza, 
Yeah. <laughs> Things they, are they recognizable. It's, yeah. it's huge lettering outside the store. It says pizza. <laughs> they know, they, they can read Wheaties, <laughs> Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, so, so they learn to read intuitively. Mm -hmm. Well, even the illiterate farmers of that day learn to read some words. But they retain more from what people are saying out loud, and it's propagating that way. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, that helps push a lot of those folks who, you know, weren't, weren't quite sure about which side to take decisively on the patriot yeah. side of I, things. What right has he got to put your hands in, in, in your pocket? Mm -hmm. And that makes, that makes sense to uh, a lot anyone. of people. Anyone. <laughs> yeah, anyone. Well, and so Payne is instrumental in kind of clarifying the argument for many Americans about why they should ultimately break from the king and from Great Britain. And, you know, he continues writing throughout the war. And we win the war. And we win the war. Which was a good thing for us. Good, yeah, worked out well for the United <laughs> States. But at some point, you know, Payne never stops being a revolutionary. You know, he gets caught up in the, in the French Revolution and, and, and whatnot. And, but then there's a kind of, um, a, a kind of break, especially between uh, uh, Payne and Washington at one point where... Payne, you know, becomes involved in the French Revolution. He's sitting in a French jail, and, and he asks Washington to get him out. Uh, what happened, uh, first of all, uh, the, the, the Revolutionary War came to an end, mm -hmm. and Tom Payne uh, had instructed his printers to give every penny, because he made tens of thousands of mm -hmm. dollars on the sale of common sense and America, the 14 American crisis essays, and he instructed his printers to give all the money to Congress for the war effort. So the end of the war, he's broke. Uh. And Washington learns that he's broke and invites him to come up and, and stay with him at, at the encampment. Mm -hmm. uh, and Payne had to borrow a dollar to get up there. <laughs> That's how broke he was. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then Washington uh, writes to the uh, heads of all, uh, terribly distressed by Payne's uh, situation, he writes to uh, leaders of the state assemblies, mm -hmm. uh, can't we do something for Thomas Paine? Mm -hmm. And some of them do send him some, uh, uh, do uh, uh, award him cash awards. Uh, and New York State gave him a farm of 277 acres uh, just north of New York City in a town called New Rochelle. And... Uh, he settles on his farm now. He's got this money. He's in good shape. Mm -hmm. And uh, he becomes, he, he was, had always been a tinkerer uh, and uh, has been, that's how part of his friendship with Ben Franklin was. And he invents a, uh, a new type of iron bridge. Bridges in America were just flat bridges across yeah. streams by, with wood. And barges usually couldn't get under those things with right. their taking their goods to market. They had to go on wagons. Well, Payne's idea, uh, invention, was a, uh, a, a steel single-span bridge held up by an arch. Okay. And the arch had to be in the shape of a perfect circle mm -hmm. so that the bigger the arch, the greater the diameter. Yeah. And you could span any river. You pass traffic right underneath it. Well, um, America's, uh, especially Philadelphia's founding fathers were, or city fathers, uh, just felt it was too expensive. And 
Franklin urges him to go to Europe where they were more advanced and interested in inventions, uh, go to Britain and France. They love new inventions. And he goes to France, and rioting breaks out in the streets. The French mm -hmm. Revolution begins so wisely, he leaves and goes over to England. And uh, the English are so enthusiastic about this that a British ironworks built a, uh, a large... Uh, not not large enough to cross rivers, but a large scale model of the Iron of uh -huh. Payne's Iron Bridge in a field outside London, uh, and the, the, everybody's terribly enthusiastic about it. Town officials promise him orders. Well, he's sitting waiting for orders, and he now he learns that the Bastille prison has fallen, mm -hmm. that the revolutionaries have calmed down. Lafayette has now in charge. And he and Jefferson are going to write the f first French, the first constitution in French history. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Payne couldn't resist, so he writes to Washington, <laughs> taking part in two revolutions. That's doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he goes over to France, and he joins Lafayette. He knew Lafayette very well from the war, and he knew Jefferson very well, and joins Jefferson and uh, Lafayette in writing uh, this constitution. Uh, and the preamble is the rights of man and the citizen. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it, it presaged our own Bill of Rights. It gave, it, it, it uh, guaranteed freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of religion. And now uh, he feels really good about himself. He goes back to England and uh, starts writing a book while still waiting for these orders to come in uh, called The Rights of Man. Mm. And he discusses rights, women's rights, uh, advanced uh, uh, you know, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, social security, uh, things that are we didn't even think about in this country mm. until the 20th century. Yeah, really modern stuff. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, it, the printers couldn't print enough of them. Uh, sold, uh, you know, 60,000 copies in England, 30,000 copies in France. Uh, he dedicated it, first part to uh, Washington and the second part to Lafayette. Uh, Thomas Jefferson by now had returned to America, was now Secretary of State, and he himself, out of his own pocket, paid for the printing of Rights of Man in America. The king just called it uh, treason and again issued a warrant for, or parliament agreed, they issued a warrant for uh, Payne's arrest and imprisonment uh, for treason. Uh, William Blake, the famous poet, uh, British poet who had become a good friend of, of Payne's, warned him that he would be arrested. Mm. And so Payne fled to Dover and just got on the boat as the British police were coming to arrest him. And he gets to France where he is greeted as a national hero. hero. Four towns elect him <laughs> to represent them in the, in the French National Assembly. Uh, he, he, he couldn't speak a word of French, but he was, <laughs> he, he was a national hero. But he spoke the right language in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, well, he appeared in the National Assembly with a translator. Uh, and then the... the uh, uh, complexion of the National Assembly changed with more and more radicals taking over and eventually uh, this uh, 
lawyer from Eastern, from Western France, uh, Maximilien Robespierre, becomes leader of a of a new party, the Jacobins. Uh, the reason they were called Jacobins is they met in the in the uh, church of Saint Jacques, which used to be uh, right near what are now the Tuileries Gardens, and he uh, gets more and more radical. Uh, uh, laws passed that uh, charge people with treason, reduces the amount of trial they can have, reduces their ability to defend themselves in trial, uh, and he decides the king should be executed. Payne objects, saying the king is a hero in America. He sent troops over to, to fight right. for our independence. Uh, Robespierre is infuriated. Uh, it goes, there's a big floor fight. A vote, uh, at first Payne wins one of the votes, and then finally Robespierre uh, wins uh, by one vote, defeats Payne's uh, opposition. By only one vote, the king is executed. Uh, uh, Robespierre expands uh, radical powers, does away with trials for, for the mm -hmm. accused, and uh, begins what was called la terreur, the terror in which thousands of innocents are executed without trial. And he now wants his revenge on Payne and orders Payne's arrest. Oh, before that, he, he did not arrest Payne uh, because the rest of Europe had gone to war against France. The last remaining ally of France was the United States. Mm -hmm. So he, he held off arresting Payne. And... Payne writes uh, to uh, he 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 has Payne arrested. I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. No, you're fine. He has Payne arrested, but he forgoes executing him because he does not want to alienate the United States. The new ambassador to France is Gouverneur Morris from ah, New York, mm -hmm. uh, whom Payne had accused of profiteering during the Revolutionary War. <laughs> And Morris now had his revenge by telling Robespierre that uh, Payne is not an American. He was born in Britain. Uh. Before Payne can order the, uh, the uh, Payne executed, the uh, so-called middle-of-the-roaders in the National Assembly have had enough of Robespierre. They order him arrested, and he's executed mm -hmm. along with his brother and all his followers. So... Payne is spared execution, but remains in prison, incognito. Governor Morris is not going to do a thing to, mm -hmm. to get him out. So he, Payne, in prison, starts writing a book called uh, The Age of Reason, Age of Reason, in which he shreds uh, all religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, Morris is replaced with James Monroe. And now, Morris, now uh, Payne writes to... George Washington, when he saw his letters to Governor Morris were having no effect, he started writing to George Washington. And again, no response. Uh, Monroe comes over. After about a month here, a, mo a month in Paris, he, real he gets word accidentally from friends of Payne that Payne is in prison. He had no idea oh. of Payne's existence. And he badgers French officials 
to release Payne. Payne comes to uh, live with uh, Morris and his wife at the uh, what was essentially the American consulate or whatever it was called. It was a mansion that mm. Monroe had rented uh, on behalf of the American government. And Payne lived with him for two years thereafter. But he started writing bitter letters to Washington mm. saying, you forgot your friends, you, you, you're treasonous, you're uh, just the most horrible person on earth to let me languish in prison. Well, of course, his anger was understandable. Sure. He assumed his letters were getting through, but his letters never got through. So Washington didn't know where he was. And Washington was actually surprised he hadn't heard from Payne. Payne was his good friend. And he assumed Payne was just too busy leading the French Revolution <laughs> to write. Then Payne did the stupid thing. And he sent a copy of his most bitter letter to Washington to the newspapers. Oh. Well, now this circulated across America as well. And it absolutely killed his, his name. And combined with uh, the age of reason, uh, which was deplored by churchgoers and mm -hmm. churchmen, uh, Payne was almost a non-person. And he returned to America to settle on his farm. Uh, when he arrived, uh, the only people that greeted him, uh, one, one was Thomas Jefferson, who was a deist, mm -hmm. as Thomas Paine was, invited him to the White House. He stayed at the White House for a few days uh, until enough people put pressure on Jefferson. Uh, hey, this guy's not going <laughs> to help uh, your political party. <laughs> and uh, so finally, Thomas Paine retires to his farm and is really despised by most Americans mm -hmm. Uh, for because of the age of reason, but it started with his letter to Washington and then the age of reason. And one night he's sitting reading in his cottage uh, north of New York City, and an, an assassin fired at him through the win living room window, missed. Uh, but he, he died uh, all but alone, just a handful of friends uh, were at his funeral, uh, newspapers didn't take any note of his death. Uh, he became a non-person. And to make matters worse, a, a crazy Englishman came over a few years later, dug up his bones, and uh, they uh, disappeared. So for, then, for what reason? So, so you wouldn't, e wouldn't even let Payne rest in peace. <laughs> so Payne made his name and became a rising star because of his pen, but his pen also did him in in the yeah. air. So you, and how many, how many books is this for you now? I'm sorry? How many books is this for you now? This is 27. 27. So uh, what's next? Well, uh, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> a lot will depend on the success of this book, mm -hmm. uh, whether uh, a publisher will pick up my next book. Well, uh, I think you'll, you'll probably meet a fair amount of success as you had with your others, and uh, you have a talk to get to, and so... We should get you uh, on your way. But thank you very much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Abusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.